Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Our guest today is Thomas Schumacher. Hereafter, we'll refer to him as Tom. And Tom is uh, currently the president of Buena Vista Theatrical Group, which is a division of the Walt Disney Company. He's been with Disney for 15 years, for most of those years, in the feature animation and Walt Disney television animation units. He has supervised 21 animated features, including some very recognizable names like The Nightmare Before Christmas, The Lion King, Pocahontas, Toy Story, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and many, many more. Currently, he's running the division that puts the shows in Broadway theaters, touring companies around this country, international as well. We'll get into all that in a few minutes, but Howard is just bursting with an opening question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the apocryphal story about the start of Disney theatrical productions is that It started the day that Frank Rich wrote a review of the movie Beauty and the Beast and said the best new musical right now is this animated feature, Beauty and the Beast. Is that the genesis of it? What's what's the true story? Well, there's a version of, of, of the Frank Rich story that I think he usually denies actually being any part of it. But there's a version of that that's sort of true. What really happened is people adored the animated film of Beauty and the Beast. Don't forget, before there was an animation category at the Academy of Motion Pictures um, for the Oscar... Beauty was actually nominated as Best Picture that year. People forget about that. But what the late Howard Ashman and the extraordinary Alan Menken created with that score felt like classic Broadway music, really in the vein of what you remember for, like, the great R&H musicals. So, yes, Frank did say that. But where it really grew out of is a guy named Rob Roth, Robert Jess Roth, who ultimately directed the show, was a theater guy working in the Disney theme parks. And he went to Michael Eisner, who grew up in New York and was a big theater fan and was a theater major in college, and said, Michael, we should do Beating the Beast on Broadway. And the idea kind of got poo-pooed and Rob pushed. And ultimately, the company made a a one-off commitment to put Beauty and the Beast up as a stage play. It uh, did an out-of-town try in Houston, came into New York and opened in the spring of 1994. And the fact is, that show gave birth to a division, but it was thought at the time just to be a one-off. And it really emerged out of, was it within the animation department at that time, or could no, you, no, there, no, there's no. a this link show, there? This show totally came from the theme park group. Rob had done a theme park show of uh, beauty, very different, you know, with the big big costumes that you're used to probably from the Disney theme parks, did a, a show with that and then said, no, I want to do it with, you know, real theatrical people. Anne Holdboard did those beautiful costumes, which she won a Tony for um, with beauty. The show was created out of that group. A standalone unit broke away from the theme park and put that show up. Then what happened is simultaneous with beauty being mounted, uh, Bob Stern, who was at that time a famous architect, Robert A.M. Stern, who uh, at the time was a board member of the Walt Disney Company, Michael Eisner's personal architect, designed a house for Michael, and Bob was very big in the whole 42nd um, Street redevelopment. And Bob interested Michael in the uh, restoration of the New Amsterdam Theater. So simultaneously with beauty coming in, now you've got the extraordinary Hugh Hardy restoring for a gigantic sum of money, paid for by the Walt Disney Company, to bring... Um, the new M back to life, and it was in a shambles, of course, at the time. So now you have that theater, and you have beauty, and then the last ingredient to come in, or the theater was being completed, the last ingredient to come in was the Lion King movie that opened in June of 94 and became a huge hit. So that summer, Lion King movie, big hit, Beauty and the Beast has just opened on Broadway, it's selling tickets like crazy, the new M is being restored, and I'm in a meeting with Michael Eisner. It's Michael Eisner, myself, Peter Schneider, um, 
my longtime partner and collaborator before, even before Disney, and we're hanging around talking about what might happen next. We had a conversation with Elton John. Elton John said, I don't want to do another animated movie, but I would do a Broadway show. And thus, that day was given birth Aida, not Lion King. Huh. And Aida went into development the summer of 94 because of the success of the Lion King movie and Beauty on Broadway. Then a year later, um, Ward Morehouse said, I'll bet the next thing coming. Surprising I'm giving credit to Ward Morehouse for anything. But Ward Morehouse writes in his then column, I'll bet the next thing from Disney is going to be the Lion King on stage. And we all said that's the worst idea in the world. And Michael Eisner called me and said... What a great idea. Let's put the Lion King on stage. Suddenly <laughs> <laughs> so became a great idea And the idea answer for is, yes, Mr. Eisner. <laughs> no, I said, Michael, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. He said, we can't put the Lion King on stage. It's, it's where beauty is inherently theatrical. And it's people, people inside teapots, but it's people. Um, Lion King is animals. And, and it's big, wide shots of the Serengeti. We had uh, many, many discussions about it until finally he said, Tom, I don't think you understand. I'm not asking if you think it's a good idea. I'm telling you, <laughs> do it. And at this time, the theatrical division was growing with Peter Schneider and myself, who were both theater guys who kind of got shanghaied into the animation world for a while. And this was back in – so this is almost 10 years ago. This is 90, uh, 94. Peter and I got – it was 10 years ago. Um, Peter and I got uh, this sort of assignment to build a theatrical division for the Walt Disney Company. Beauty was on its feet. We put Aida in development. We put Lion King into development with Julie Taymor. And the thing started. What? The Julie Taymor choice was obviously an inspired one. In that choice, there was a decision made not to precisely replicate the film. Certainly, Beauty and the Beast, in many ways, tried to to bring the same imagery onto the stage. How did that come about, and what was the comfort level within the company about tampering with with something that had obviously worked so well? Well, there's a couple of things happened at the same time. One is the choice to have Beauty... Um, reflect the movie is sort of a natural choice because the movie feels like a stage show. So there's sort of a there is an inherent logic to that. Um, as a side note, by the way, Beauty is now being licensed all over um, through MTI Music Theater International. I just went and saw a production not ours up at North Shore in uh, in Boston two weeks ago. It's it was just done in California at a children's theater. It's being done everywhere now in all sorts of different versions. So people can do any version of it um, within the limitations of our agreement with MTI that they'd like to do. So you'll see lots of beauty now. But the beauty we have does reflect the movie. When Michael and I were having Michael Eisner and I were having this argument about the Lion King, I said you cannot put the Lion King movie on stage, and he really said I don't care how you do it, just do it. So this called on then my experience. I mean, I when I was working in the theater, I have a theater degree um, actually from UCLA. I'd worked for Gordon Davidson for five years at the Mark Taper Forum. I'd worked with all sorts. I'd worked with Joe Chaikin. I'd worked actually with Peter Brook when he adapted the Mahabharata into English. We did the English language premiere as part of that. I'd been in this sort of range of theatrical stuff and also st- and been a puppetry student at uh, in university. Um, so I had this sort of other world theater idea in my head anyway. And the first person um, I called to talk to about this was Julie Taymor because I knew that what Julie would come up with if she was interested is not putting the movie on stage, which I knew was impossible, but taking the myth, the tale of it, um, recognizing that it is an allegory, it's a human story told with animals, that Julie would be able to to uh, sort of crack the nut. And uh, she was really the only call. And I actually found Julie through Rob Marks, who was then at the New York Library for the Performing Arts. Now, with Lion King, I get a feeling of Disney, Disneyland, Disney World, Main Street Electrical Parade, the big animals parading down the aisles of the theater up onto the stage. Was that 
part of the consideration when you had the stage, you didn't have the vast Serengeti anymore, but you had a theater, the four walls of a theater. Was that part of it, a, a, like, a, like a Disney feel well, to it? There's all, I always get the question, what did Disney think? Or how does, what does Disney believe? Or is this Disney? And the fact is, there is no Disney. There are people. There are people who work in different parts of the company, myself who has worked in several, um, that have a point of view. That's really, there is no sort of grand Disney committee, if you will. There's no big granite table with guys that you've mm-hmm. never met. Who, and you don't who sit said, around and say, what would Walt do? Well, well we never do that. <laughs> um, but the, the notion really was when, Ju- when I went to Julie, Julie said the way to tell this story is with people. And she created what is quite clearly on stage this what she calls the double event, which is that the people are always present. And it is people who are telling you the story of these animals. So we never hide the people. If they're a giraffe, um, if they're a lion, um, if they're a meerkat, you see the people always revealed as part of the costume. They're never hidden. The notion of coming down the aisles, of course, what else would you do? Mm-hmm. If you mounted this production um, 100 years ago, you would have walked people down the aisle. It, the opening number, the circle of life, is a procession. Mm-hmm. There is this convocation when Rafiki comes out and, and calls out, and you hear the call bounce around the theater from these different fantastic African singers who are chanting. Really, the only choice is to come down the aisles. But there was never a, oh, this is the Disney approach. I really went to Julie and said, Julie, come up with a, a concept for the production. Uh, she didn't design the whole thing. She designed the costumes. She co-designed the, the masks and puppets. Richard Hudson, the, the beautiful set, and uh, Don Holder, that extraordinary lighting. We brought in wonderful people, most of whom, in fact, all of whom had never worked on Broadway before. So was it, in effect, starting with a kind of a, a clean slate? You had the basic premise of what the Lion King story is. Now, how do we tell this in the theater without any other preconceived notions? Sure. Well, it? obviously, the story itself is its a very simple tale of this this boy who who um, dreams of following his father's footsteps, in a sense gets framed for his father's murder, um, leaves believing the only way to get away is to just leave it all behind him and then realizes he must face his responsibilities, take his rightful place, and he goes back to the Pride Lands. It's a very simple story. But what Julie did first, actually, is our first conversations were all about the music. She said, you know, I just love this. She goes, you've got these great songs that Elton John and Tim Rice wrote that clearly were hits. One won an Oscar and became a number one hit. One of them became like number two. I mean, they were hugely successful at the time. But she said, I also love what Hans Zimmer did with the score and particularly what he did with Lebo M. Lebo is the voice you hear, um, the, the chant at the top of the movie. We brought Lebo in, um, who we'd worked with extensively on the film, and Lebo created new songs for the stage show, used coming out of this African, specifically South African tradition of choral singing. He created that. We actually developed the music first. Then we developed the story and filled it out um, to add the new sequences, the new elements to, to enrich the telling of it, because obviously a movie is 74 minutes long. And then Julie began the process of conceiving how she might put this thing on stage. Well, it seems an appropriate moment then to play something from The Lion King, uh, one of the songs that was new on stage. Because as you said, the movie the movie was 74 minutes long. The stage show is two and a half hours long. So there definitely was was material added to well, it. Sure, and, and we added with music. And of course, the Broadway show is a musical. That's the way it is billed as opposed to the movie that happens to have music in it. Some very good music. Well, you know, there's a really specific difference between what is a film musical and a stage musical. And most people, it's sort of transparent to them, but it's quite clearly different. Stage musicals tell their story with music, and film musicals pepper their story with music. And it's a it's a very different kind of storytelling. 
Um, but here, yes, every time in the classic rule of every time you turn a corner with the story or meet new characters or there's new narrative to be developed, we do tell it with music. In some cases, though, in this show, we actually tell it with songs not even in English. Um, but the audience perceives it and follows mm-hmm. along. Well, one of the, uh, I think, the major numbers that have been added to it is They Live in You. Can you explain what that does in terms of the show and why it was added? In other words, how did this song develop and why? Uh, this is a really beautiful song um, that Mark Mancina and Lebo M created. Um, the version you're going to hear actually is sung by um, Samuel Wright. Sam Wright, who played Mufasa in the original company, is actually known to your listeners probably as well as, as the voice of Sebastian in The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they listen to this, you really can't hear a bit of Sebastian there. Where this comes is one of the most poignant moments um, in the story, and it's a moment that was beautifully animated with almost no speaking. This is after Simba has has, um, disobeyed his father, and um, he has uh, um, gone off into the part of the the land that he's not supposed to go to, which is occupied by the hyenas. He gets in trouble, endangers himself, and his father has to come save him. And his father gets very cross with him and says, how could you have done this? I told you not to do that. You did it. And... Uh, he then begins to play with his son. Um, it's it's a nighttime scene and, and tries to then, after being so harsh to them, to comfort him. And the boy says, well, Dad, you we're friends, right? And the father says, yes. And he says, we'll be together forever, right? And the father realizes, well, no father and son are together forever. That, of course, the father will, as the circle of life tells us, um, move on and the son will grow up. And this is his way of explaining that, that although there is that, that nature that fathers will die and sons will grow up, that the great kings of the past, his family, they all actually do live in the stars. They live in you, they live in the stars, and they look down on you. And so the father in this moment is saying, you'll always be with me because I will always be somewhere. From The Lion King, They Live in You. John von Susten and Howard Sherman were chatting today with Tom Schumacher from the Disney Company about the various stage productions that they've been doing. Tom, The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, both obviously very popular films. What was the genesis of Aida? Why why did you choose Aida as, as a project? You know, people often ask me, they say, well, will you ever do something that's not based on one of your movies? And I say, well, actually, 30% of what we have on Broadway isn't based on one mm-hmm. of our movies. Um, where Aida came from actually is... Um, I had actually read a book written by Leontine Price, um, and what what she had done is create the backstory of who Aida was and where she came from. I thought that was interesting because obviously, as for herself, as an extraordinary opera singer and a woman who played Aida beautifully in so many times in so many different productions, she'd had to think about how this thing happened because the story of the opera, they all know each other. Um, This love triangle has already established it's in place. Everything is set in motion before the opera even begins. And so her book gave this background to it. And I thought that was an interesting idea. And I thought about, might this be a film? What could it be? And then sort of put the idea aside. And it came up really after the Lion King movie was a hit. And we were talking to Elton John about what he might do next. And uh, the idea kind of got thrown on the table. And Aida had an extraordinary journey because we had this sort of this small book by Leontine Price. Um, We had fleshed the story out and then began... Um, working in earnest um, to bring the thing to the stage. We've never intended, and as we can talk about what's coming and what's happening, that we exclusively produce things that are based on our movies. It's just that we do have an extraordinary catalog of films, um, and in many cases we're lucky because we were part of making those movies who also you know, run this division. 
So it's logical that we would call them that. Anybody else would try to get hold of our titles, as you know, as we logical. But today. when you choose something like Aida, which is based on an opera, that's the way people think of Aida as an opera. Isn't that kind of a tough sell to a mom and dad spend a couple hundred bucks and bring your kids to see quote an opera, even and, though it's not as we know? But well, it's a good question. Except that in reality, if you were to stick your head in, but not maybe in the middle of the summer, but between September and June, if you were to walk into the Lion King on a weeknight, you would see certainly the audience is over 80% adults. Mm-hmm. There's a, a perception of people um, that somehow The Lion King is for kids, which if, as Walt Disney said, if I depended upon critics and children to make a living, I'd go broke. Um, the Lion King is appealing to children, although it is a full-length show. So if your kid can't sit through The King and I or doesn't make it through Sound of Music, they're unlikely to make it through The Lion King either. The reality is it's a full-length Broadway show. When we began to work on Aida, the intention all along was that we would just make a proper Broadway show. Um, and it does pitch itself up. In fact, the audience tends not to be kids because the story in and of itself is probably not as appealing to them. It's very big with teenagers and college students, obviously. And when you go to the theater, you can sort of see why because it, it has a kind of a, a younger heat to it. But it's fundamentally a classic musical. But would it not have been an easier sell within Disney and to the public in general to pick Snow White or Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella or something else that's better known? Well, sure. In fact, at one point, we actually – with Aida – um, we went to the source material, the same material, of course, that the very opera is based on, which is this sort of myth about this uh, uh, Nubian princess and this uh, um, Egyptian general. We went to that same sort of material. There's only really, you know, four things that any musical is fashioned out of. They're either fashioned out of a book. We could list any number of those. Tales of the South Pacific is a classic example. They're based on a play. Green Grow the Lilacs, Oklahoma, you know, that kind of thing. We take a play and convert it over, or the more obvious. Or you turn to a film. Used to be films came from shows. Now shows tend to come from um, film. That equation is always about economic risk or social phenomenon. Um, and there's a handful of shows that are based on some big social phenomenon, like casting a show. What is life like to try to be an actor? Certainly one of the greatest musicals ever written, Chorus Line, which broke the rules. Um, in its narrative, but fundamentally social phenomenon. So you have books, plays, movies, social phenomenon. We went to, this case, a play, which is fundamentally um, an opera, the book of that, and said, how could we tell that again? And that's in a long tradition, you know, um, West Side Story from Romeo and Juliet, and Romeo and Juliet, of course, is loosely adapted from another piece. So the notion of adapting that which came before is pretty logical. In terms of whether it's a hard sell, actually, we're not even the first people to have taken Aida and made a musical out of it. My Darling Aida was created with all new lyrics, but using the Verdi music and setting the story during the Civil War. Most people haven't heard that. We haven't seen (laughs) that one. My Darling Aida. As we talk about the development, of course, what's interesting is there is some degree of a roadmap in terms of it is an adaptation of existing material, but but you weren't looking at a specific film that you had the rights to. There was a lot more freedom in in developing Aida as as you all saw fit. You started it out of town at a not-for-profit theater. It was not called Aida at the time? What we did was because, you know, everything needs some level of exploration in terms of its development, and because we were starting from something not completely from scratch, but if you if you look at it, that's just a notion or a tale. There's no real narrative there. So we said, how might we approach this? And one of the ideas was, let's just do a regional theater production of it. Um, it at that time, was called Elaborate Lives. And uh, it was actually being directed by Rob Roth, 
Elton wrote the music, and we, t- we took it to uh, Atlanta. We did it with Kenny Leon at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, which was just a fantastic space because it's a beautiful theater space. We did not have a Broadway theater booked. Um, we didn't build a Broadway production. We just said, let's go try the show. And in fact, we learned a lot. Um, we learned a lot about the show and ultimately jettisoned that production for any number of reasons, um, although there's a myth about it that we jettisoned because of some scenic issue, which wasn't the case at all. Although it the did have – The long-discussed pyramid. Oh, there was this pyramid. There was this fantastic idea of this pyramid that could, like origami, become a unit set. And everybody – you know, this is not a big novel idea to do, build a unit set that keeps becoming different things. It's all the story. The problem with this thing is it didn't actually work well. There's a long history of that. I, you know, I've heard the chess stories. Till I'm, you know, I've heard, you know about New York, and there's any number of shows where fundamentally the the scenic element didn't work. And in what in Atlanta was just a, a relatively brief run on Broadway, of course, you would have sorted it out and it would have been fine. But really, and 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 the set, I think it was it was actually very well crafted. It just didn't work in terms of a piece of art. It was great. Engineering wasn't so great. But what we learned when it broke down when, at the very first preview. And we put a circle of chairs on the stage. Alan Hall, fantastic stage manager, sort of threw me out of the stage manager booth when I said we have to send the audience home because the set's broken. Mm-hmm. And Alan said, Tom, it's it's after 8 o'clock. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the show's mine now, so get back to your seat. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Alan proceeded to um, bring the actors out, and they performed the show concert style for an unbelievably excited audience, an audience that was so excited, in fact, that when Heather Headley sang um, Easy as Life in the second act – they spontaneously stood up, cheered, and stopped the show. And that night we learned that the fundamental music that Elton and Tim had created and the tale was working, but our methodology of telling it wasn't. And so we began to work on it there and ultimately jettisoned that production, went back into development with it, brought in another team, um, and mounted the version that you see on Broadway. And that actually had a proper um, out-of-town tryout. What's interesting about this, and it's never really been clear, is how fantastic the original team was who did it. There would be no Aida if the original choreographer, designer, director, people had not been there because they did a massive amount of exploration of the material, and the vast majority of the music was all written um, under their supervision. Well, that's uh, kind of a natural uh, lead into playing a song, I think. You mentioned Easy as Life, Heather Headley. Uh, and can you tell us how that plays in the show before we actually play the song? Sure. Also, you know, Heather, interestingly, was in the original cast of The Lion King. She played Nala, which is how uh, we found her. And, and I, Na- Nala is the... And Nala is the girl. The girl. The, 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 the girlfriend of the leading, the protagonist, Simba. And uh, and we had added a song to the Broadway show so that when she's... Because the character doesn't have much to do in the movie at all. And we would beefed up all the women in it, and Heather was one of them. And so I'd fallen in love with Heather on The Lion King and knew that she would be uh, extraordinary in Aida. And, of course, she went on to win a Tony Award for this performance. Where this show fits is that we're in the second act. The story of Aida, in a nutshell, is we're set in the time of the pharaohs. And Aida, who is a Nubian princess, uh, is taken captive by the conquering Egyptian forces led by a guy named Rodimaze. He doesn't know that she's a princess. She's just one of the women that they've captured, and he is interested in her. And when he returns to Egypt to keep his eye on her and stay around her because he's so drawn to her, he gives her as a gift to his betrothed um, daughter of the pharaoh, Princess Amneris. So now you have a princess unknown to be so serving as handmaiden to another princess. Rodimaes is supposed to marry the Egyptian princess but falls in love with Aida. Aida and Amneris become essentially best friends because she has a handmaiden who somehow understands her because, of course, the handmaiden herself um, had been a princess. In the second act of the show, Aida's father, 
the head of her country, the head of Nubia, is taken captive himself. And she goes to see him in prison. And he realizes that she, indeed, has fallen in love with her captor. And he says, you will cut this man from your heart. And she doesn't know what to do. Does she honor her country? Does she honor her heart? Who will she betray, Radames or her country, her father? She's left with this extraordinarily brutal choice that she has to make. And alone on stage, she then sings Easy as Life. From Aida, that's Heather Headley's performance of Easy as Life. We're chatting with Tom Schumacher today from the Disney Company. Now, Tom, we're talking to you on the eve of the closing of, as you characterized before, 33% of the Broadway uh, he said 30, production. He said 30, he said 30 well, but I rounded I'm, I'm down. 33 and a third. Um, but we, we are on the eve of the closing of Aida. But what's certainly remarkable, just in terms of these first three shows, is they're everywhere. I mean, at this point, how many stages are you on? How And how many of these shows are you seeing? Who's keeping them up? Who's making sure, sure that they you know, stay to the Disney standard? Part of it, yeah, what I find interesting is, of course, everyone's really aware of The Lion King. It's a, it's a very successful show, Beauty and the Beast, 10 years on Broadway. And Aida, which is now, well, I've had a four-and-a-half-year run on Broadway, which is pretty amazing. I mean, beating shows like MAME and Music Man. I mean, it's amazing how um, long it is in terms of its running. We've actually you know, done shows that have never made it to Broadway. Um, or that did briefly. You know, we produced with Alan Menken and Tim Rice an oratory on the life of King David, which is an extraordinary piece of music um, that had its debut at the um, New Amsterdam Theater that um, um, has never been heard since. And uh, uh, it's some of my favorite music that Alan's created. We also, you know, did an adaptation of our film The Hunchback of Notre Dame that James Lapine adapted the book for. Done in German. Yeah, we did it. We were approached by now um, a defunct German company called Stella, um, and they commissioned it, essentially. And the condition was we would create it in English, all the workshops, did all the work here with American actors, and then took it um, uh, to Berlin. We actually ultimately cast it there, cast an American as Quasimodo, um, who learned the German ult- first phonetically and then mastered it as a language. And uh, we pr- it ran for over two years in Berlin. It was the first musical ever to play in Berlin. And that piece, in fact, will... Um, it has its own life. So uh, to, that will net, so that's it is now, now heading towards a television production, is it? Um, ABC has optioned it to make a television version of it, which Jason Moore is attached to, you know, Director after the Q, right? But also, actually, The Hunchback Notre Dame will be produced next year in Korea. Our our script will be done but in Korea. But not in German now. No, it'll be – so that they'll take the English script from me, which was translated into German. They'll take the English script, all of our orchestrations, all of our everything, and do it in Korea. I'm then going to use the money that I make off my license in Korea, go back into development with The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, and we're in discussions with a regional theater right now in America who've also said – could we do um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame? So actually, it will have a real life now and be done and be a licensed property that people can get. It's unlikely that we would do it on Broadway, um, but who knows? You've said that King David really has not been seen since since that concert version. Is there a reason that that's not licensed? There's not an opportunity for other people to do that in concert versions? Yeah, it's actually is a simple business thing, which is all these other properties are pieces that, that – that I handle and that are owned by the Walt Disney Company. In the case of King David, the rights of King David are actually controlled by Alan Menken and Tim Rice. And between them, they've been trying to sort out what they will do with it. In the case of Hunchback, because, you know, for me it was great. Somebody else paid us to do it, paid for all of it, and we made much of money on it and got to develop it. But I think it's such a glorious score 
that I want to hear it done again. And so I'm now going through the effort of meeting with people to see who will, in fact, produce that show. So if you look at it, you've got Aida, Beauty, and Lion King here. Aida will close this summer. But Aida continues to play. Right now it's in Osaka. It's been up for six months. It'll play a full year in Osaka. The exact production you see um, uh, in uh, in New York is what is playing in Osaka. And it moved to Tokyo. Um, Aida is also playing in Essen, Germany. And uh, Bob Falls, who directed, Robert Falls, who directed Aida, and uh, Bob Crowley, who did these extraordinary sets and costumes, and I have been working for the last six months to develop, in a sense, what we call Aida 2 in our heads, which is a slightly smaller version of Aida that will fit into more European theaters. And we're hoping to launch um, a tour of Aida that will actually, well, a tour, a, a production which can mount in Madrid and then be recast and go to Milan and then be recast and move around Europe. So Aida lives on in that fashion. But today it's in three places. And how about in this country? Yeah, here we did a, we did a national tour that ran for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's being done like North Shore is going to do it now. It's being licensed all over the country in individual productions um, and will likely tour again um, in America. Then you have Beauty, which is currently playing in New York and in Japan. Beauty has been in uh, 11 countries around the world. There have been many productions of Beauty. And now Beauty is being licensed everywhere. Um, uh, licensed meaning people can do their own production, as I and many of your listeners did growing up, where we did our own school productions of Hello, Dolly, or Oliver, or Mame. Now you can do that same thing with, with uh, Beauty and with Aida. Lion King tonight um, is playing in New York, of course, um, in Boston, uh, in the middle of the convention, I might add. Um, all the conventioners came yesterday afternoon. Um, it's playing in San Francisco. In Boston and San Francisco are, are two national tours that are out. It has played in Toronto, did Toronto for three and a half years, but closed there. You can also see it tonight in London, Hamburg, uh, Nagoya, Tokyo, and Sydney. Now, you've kept Beauty and the Beast going for a long, long time by injecting various stars into the show, people who are known, such as the case right now with Christy Carlson Romano, right, and known, known through the Disney Channel, and the same thing with The Lion King with Deborah yeah. A. Cox. No, that's, it, that's Aida. Aida, actually. Aida, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Aida, I'm sorry, uh, with Aida. Um, in these other countries, do you do the same thing with stars in those countries? Well, what we did, it really started um, – uh, with Tony Braxton going into Beauty and the Beast, uh-huh. where when we were still at the Palace Theater before he moved over to the Lund, and we thought, you know, it'd be fun to kind of shake it up. We don't ever build our shows around stars particularly, but the notion that we could put somebody in, mm-hmm. and we, we brought Tony in who had never really done it before, and, and she was quite successful in the show. And that launched this idea that everybody does in a long run um, to keep interest and to keep, frankly, the media to be willing to talk about your show still. Uh, any number of people have come into beauty. Not always necessarily stars in the the national eye, but people who are stars in our community. Andrew McArdle has played Belle. Tony Braxton has played Belle. Many different women have come in. And in fact, right now is a, is a woman who is uh, Christy Carlson Romano, who oddly, when we told everyone Christy was going to do the show, they'd say, who? And I said, I don't care that you know who she is. Mm-hmm. She's a big star. Um, Hugh Jackman called Rob Roth, who directed Beauty, the other night. And Hugh, Hugh Jackman played Gaston in the Australia production of Beauty really? and the Beast, by the way. Yeah. Most people don't know that. And Hugh called Rob, um, who directed, of course, the Broadway production and the Australia production, and said, who's this girl you've got in Beauty and the Beast? She's got a bigger crowd outside her door than I do. <laughs> because, because Christy is on um, uh, a show called Even Stevens on the Disney right. Channel. And then she's also the voice of a very popular animated character named Kim Possible. Right. And in the oh, yes, and Deborah Cox, of course. We've had many. Uh, Michelle Williams, Deborah Cox, Tony Braxton in, in Aida. In the, in the demographic, shall we say, of the, the young family with kids and teens, 
very, very well-known name. Oh, she is. And if Absolutely. you don't, if, and if you don't have kids, you probably don't know who she is, which I think is just an important thing about recognizing what is star casting. Star casting is who's a star to your audience. Now, when you create a property, I, I come out of television research. I've spent many years doing Nielsen rating research, that sort of thing. What kind of research do you do? Do you say, we want to reach a certain target audience? Do you try to... To, to develop a show for a certain a family audience, or or do you just ignore that completely? Um, I don't believe in research, actually. Right. And in fact, um, Nancy Coyne, who runs the probably the most important marketing company in New York, Sereno Coyne, often quotes me now because I said, if research worked, everyone would make hits. Mm-hmm. And what I think the best research is, is the long-tested research that probably goes back to Aeschylus, which is they read your play out loud in a theater and you listen to the audience. Um, and that works it's something you can't do in television. It's something I grew up doing on the stage in theater, and then something I did um, through my, my when I used to work in the film business. You watch a rough cut of a movie with an audience, and you can tell when the popcorn counter is more popular than the movie. You know you have to do some cutting. It's the great tradition of Broadway is to put the show up and feel it with the audience and many audiences, not just one, and see what happens. You know, we have a sense of what makes an appropriate show. Um, and if you look at what we're developing now, the shows that we're doing, um, will, will everything we, we, we consider to develop make it to the stage? No, because that's what development's about. Development is research to say, is it working? But certainly as we look at what we would do, um, you have a sense these things probably would be appealing to an audience. But you, you don't do focus group testing, that sort of thing? Not before you do a show. Mm-hmm. The only real focus group stuff that, that we do and, and that I'm willing to, to see happen is um, – uh, on marketing materials occasionally. Uh, people will come in and you know look at one poster versus another. But even with that, frankly, um, one of my favorite movies I worked on out of the many is a film called The Emperor's New Groove. It probably has the worst title in the history of the world, and that title was picked by research. So, uh, And in the case, certainly, of The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, you have box office gross, you have VHS sales, you have that kind of thing. So that does that enter into your decision at all? Well, sure. Uh, you know, I've been lucky. I've worked on all sorts of things, successful shows, shows that don't work, successful movies, movies that don't work. And usually you want to exploit the ones that do work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a logical choice. If I, You know, um, there are movies, you know, I don't think I'm going to bring, you know, Atlantis to the stage anytime mm-hmm. soon. And what about working with the other Disney divisions? Certainly uh, you can, at intermission time, walk into The Lion King and buy a stuffed animal of a lion. You can do the same thing with the other shows. Well, actually the merchandise, which uh, fortunately for me is not a business we developed. Um, souvenirs of, uh, of shows have been around for quite some time. Some time, I'd argue we probably do a little bit better, but the the uh, merchandise in the Lion King is actually created and managed um, completely by Disney Theatrical. There's no other division involved. Disney Theatrical is a pretty closed shop. Um, we have you know all of our own lawyers and accounting. Everything is internal, and the only money that we have to spend is the money that gets invested in the original production to get it open. And if the show can't keep running, the show can't keep running. Um, our economy is no different than how any other producer comes to Broadway. You get investors to capitalize your show. You mount the show. And then you can only keep running if your show keeps earning money. There's no I, – I have no other sort of source to go to. The big difference is if you're a hit producer, you probably have four or five investors. And fortunately right now I'm a hit producer and I have one investor. And my investor is Michael Eisner who invests money on behalf of the shareholders. But there's no sort of – there's no faucet to turn to get more money. Well, you mentioned 
what was in development. So it seems appropriate now to segue. You've been spending some time going back and forth to England and are going to be spending more time there uh, this month with Mary Poppins starting again in out-of-town tryout in England. You're not going right to London with it. Right. What are the plans for Mary Poppins? Well, Mary Poppins is an interesting property. We, um, obviously, we, the Walt Disney Company, um, Walt, um, who was an extraordinary visionary, Walt had fallen in love with these books by P.L. Travers. Pamela Travers is a woman born in Australia um, and moved to England as an adult, became known as P.L. Travers, and in the 30s wrote these beautiful books about this kind of quirky, magical nanny who inexplicably shows up in the Banks family home and saves the family and sort of restores them, but only through little episodes. Walt had bought the rights to these books and um, ultimately in 1964 released now a very popular movie, um, with fantastic songs by Robert and Richard Sherman that are now standard, supercalifragilistic, spoonful of sugar, and what have you. Walt actually never had the right to put the show on stage. What Walt had was a blocking right that could prevent anyone else from doing a stage version, but did not have the right to produce it. Uh, Karen McIntosh, um, who, if there's anybody somewhere under a rock who hasn't heard of, is the single most successful theatrical producer of the last half of the first century, last of the last half of the last century, and certainly still today with shows like Cats and Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon and on and right mm-hmm. Cameron, yeah, he's a fantastic guy. And Cameron um, had long wanted to do Mary Poppins, but knew he couldn't do Mary Poppins unless he had th- those Disney songs. But, but he did acquire from Pamela the right to do it on stage. And there was a long um, process by which Cameron tried to get Disney just to give him the right to do it. And we, in turn, said, well, since you have the stage rights, which we don't have, why don't you just give us those stage rights? And through this whole period of time, the Disney theatrical division was born, and, and we achieved you know, some success of our own. And it became more logical that we would want to do it, and for him more logical that he would want to do it. The thing that seemed completely illogical is that there would be any kind of a partnership, because how could that possibly work? And uh, true to form, um, neither side could budge, and we got nowhere. And in uh, December of 2001, when no one besides me was still interested in flying, I secretly went to London um, and met with Cameron, who I'd only met once before at a lunch, and said, look, this is never going to happen. We've been, this has been a negotiation for eight years or something. Mm. It's not going to happen. But if it had happened, what's never been talked about is what the show would have been. What did you want? And our little hour-long meeting stretched on for hours. Um, I told him I was going to be back in London a week later. We might get together again. Of course, it was a total ruse. I was just going to come back to meet with him again. But I didn't want him to think I was making a special trip. He knows now. Um, (laughs) I came back a week later. We began talking again. I went back to Michael Eisner and said, I think we could make Mary Poppins happen. Everyone said it wouldn't work. I said, well, let me try to get a deal together. And we proceeded to begin working on the show. And that was in December of 2001. Um, we went into rehearsal on the 19th of July of 2004. Uh, it's being directed by Richard Eyre, co-directed and choreographed by Matthew Bourne. The book, the adaptation, which is the adaptation of the books themselves by Pamela Travers, the screenplay of the movie, um, that adaptation is being done, that book has been written by Julian Fellow, is probably best known as an actor and as the guy who wrote the Academy Award-winning screenplay to Gosford Park. It's an extraordinary team. Bob Crowley, my beloved Bob Crowley, who designed sets and costumes for Aida, is doing the sets and costumes. And we go, we're in rehearsal. We go to Bristol to open in September. And you have new songs Yeah, as new well. songs written by George Stiles and Anthony Drew. George and Ants, um, uh, I first met them because they wrote a show called Honk 
Yeah, they're protégés of Cameron's. Yeah. Cameron discovered them while still at university. Yes, and they, they wrote Honk, which won the Olivier and beat the Lion King for it in London. The, the <laughs> Olivier. That must have been of, a fun meeting you had. It was fun. The, the, the Olivier, sort of the, 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 the English version of the Tony Award, they won Best Musical over the Lion King with Honk. And with Cameron, they had developed a couple of things, but most famously uh, a show called Just So, based on the Rudyard Kipling Just So stories. And Cameron had long been a fan of theirs, and they had written on spec a couple of songs for the show. One song, interestingly... Um, and the one that remains in the show today is a song called Practically Perfect, which they had written for when Mary Poppins arrives in the nursery. It's a scene that everyone knows. It's where in the um, film version, Spoonful of Sugar Falls. And they'd written a song called Practically Perfect where she sort of talks about her philosophy and who she is. Um, Time flash ahead. I hear the song. I love it. Time flashes ahead. We're all working together on the show. And it seems appropriate that we should introduce... Richard Sherman, who wrote the music with his brother Robert, we would introduce Richard to George and Anne, our new songwriters, to say, these are the guys who are going to add new songs to the old songs and do some reshaping. And they played the song Practically Perfect and explained where it goes. And uh, D- uh, Dick Sherman said, that's so interesting because my brother and I wrote a song called Practically Perfect for that very spot mm-hmm. in the show. Wow. Now, now, why didn't you go back to him to, to do the music? Um you know, one of the things that – there were many conditions to the deal with the estate and what have you. And one of them was that um, more we'd have more English people involved in the show. Also, um, Bob and Dick aren't really writing as much as they as uh-huh. they used to. Um, and it was sort of an appropriate moment in time to pass the mantle on to two new songwriters who would add some new songs and do some adaptations of theirs. Um, Dick was just with us in the first day of rehearsals. He's fantastic, um, uh, vibrant, lovely guy, and has been giving me lots of notes and feedback on it. So he's in the mix, but it's two new songwriters. As you know, um, making a new musical is a pretty brutal experience, and uh, it seemed appropriate um, to turn it over to uh, – uh, to, and to expand that team. Now, the movie's been around for about 40 years. Uh, for the, all of the world who's familiar with the movie, when we go to see the show, will it be essentially the same as the movie or will there be big differences? Well, of course, I want you to come see the show and judge that for yourself. But if you look at the billing for the show, it so tells you everything. It's because it's uh, uh, Disney and Cameron Mackintosh present Mary Poppins based on the books by Peel Travers and the Walt Disney film. What we've done is take um, great moments uh, and, and sort of a story structure of the uh, of the arc of the of the movie because the movie's arc is fundamentally invented for the movie. There is no story to the books. They're just individual episodes. So we took f- an, fundamentally that arc, the, the, many of the episodes and scenes you know, the characters you know, and have blended that with new characters to fill it out for the stage. We've structured it as a musical um, mm-hmm. now. The movie doesn't have a first act and a second act in any sense of that kind of structure. So it's structured as a, as a, um, as a proper show with an act break. I think if you're a fan of the movie... Um, the things you've come to know and love will be there. I think if you love that music, it and some more really fantastic songs will be there. But, of course, it's our version, just as The Lion King is our version. Um, our goal was certainly not to put the movie on stage. And the great work that Cameron's done um, who, um, with helping to shape the material, what Julian's done, what George and Ants have done, and what we have from the movie, I think, come together to make an all-new thing that certainly taps into what you know. And when, when, when will we see it in this country? Well, of course, my real job, Cameron and I have to actually get it on in London and course, see whether we have a successful course. show. Presuming that it's successful, uh, the following season would be an appropriate time to bring 2006, it 2006, are we talking? Or well, it would be late, appropriate late in the 0506 season. 0506. Now, there's another show that you've got that's going to be out nationally that, in contrast to what happens with a lot of shows, right now there's no plan for New Yorkers to see, which is on the record. 
and we're we're wrapping up. We've only got a couple of minutes, but can you tell us about the genesis of On the Record? Sure. On the On the Record is a sh- a show that Bobby Longbottom is uh, directing and choreographing and, and help conceive, which is based on the catalog of Disney music. It's right now got about sixty four of the most famous Disney songs in it. Um, it's the most musical, 64? 64, because they're often done in medleys and in snippets and pieces. And what the audience is doing is arriving in a beautiful set designed by Robert Brill with Great Lights by Natasha Katz. So it's a very high-end team. Um, you're in a fantasy recording session, and you've come to sort of watch um, four singers and four backup singers lay down the ultimate two-disc set of Disney music. But of course, while they do this, you follow the drama between them, who they are, their backstory. So there is and the there journey. is a story. Oh, to there's it. a story to it. You you it's watch. It's not a review. It's not a review. You watch them record this music. But of course, the reason that I wanted Bobby to do it is Bobby is such an inventive stager and he's so clever. There's lots of choreography. The microphones come to life. They do things that you're in a very magical, fun space where you see this music get laid down. And so that and that actually, we begin rehearsals in September, and it opens in Cleveland in November, and then does one weekers around the country. It's a perfect thing to send around the country, um, and could easily be franchised um, around the world. There's, as you know, a gigantic need on the road right now um, for um, uh, more material. You want a scoop? I'll give you one. I'll give you a scoop. Give us a scoop. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, uh, Since yeah, um, actually, it's uh, we've just acquired the rights to another property. Um, and we're going to be developing a musical um, uh, built around a, a fantastic social phenomenon um, of spelling bees, and we've acquired the rights to Spellbound, Jeff Blitz's remarkable documentary about the journey of a bunch of kids who come to um, uh, the, the National Spelling Championship. And um, I've been working on this for um, uh, about a year and a half now, um, and uh, um, it's just someone else scooped it and found but out I was about gonna, it. But, but, but I have to ask you, and this happens sometimes with projects, there's already another Spelling Bee musical out there. Yeah, the William the, the, Finn the Bill has Finn one. one which yeah, he just has one, which is a very different concept than ours, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, his is sort of a spoof of Spelling Bees with adults playing kids and what have you. I've only read reviews of it. Um, it's not uncommon that Zeitgeist is out there. I mean, I first tried to acquire the rights to a book called Bee Season about four years ago about a little girl in Spelling Bees. And, of course, then Jeff made his movie and then, of course, Spelling Bees on TV. Um, I've, been, I've been on this one for, for, uh, for quite some time now, and I'm really excited well, Spellbound about it. Spellbound was an, an amazing movie for people who haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. And very fast before we wrap, uh, there's other planets. Hercules, um, Tarzan, are these all oh, the sure. things well, Tarzan looking for, is, for the stage? Tarzan is, Tarzan is uh, Phil Collins has written an all-new score for it. Um, David Henry Wong is doing the, the book for it. Bob Crowley is designing and directing it. Um, it'd be reasonable to expect that to open after Mary Poppins here in the States. Um, we've done two workshops. It's way down the road. Hmm. Have you ever considered doing non-musical theatrical productions? Um, sure. In fact, um, I just actually was playing with one this week, which is probably not a musical, but an, um, uh, almost more of a expanded reader's theater version of something. The reality is, um, on behalf of the shareholders of the Walt Disney Company, who are my investors, um, the return on musicals is so much greater. Um, that um, to devote an equal amount of time to developing straight plays, there's lots of great people who are doing straight plays, and it's probably not the place where it's best for us to put our efforts to. Although we are developing lots of material, which will never be on Broadway, which is purposely done for kids in schools um, through our licensing with MTI. So things you ask like Hercules and things like that are actually uh, Mulan. Um, actually, Cinderella is already done. 101 Dalmatians is already done. 
um, Jungle Book is done, Aladdin is done um, for licensed pr- productions for you know for little kids. In some cases, being written for kids who are six to eight years old. So you are in fact exploiting other Disney properties. Sure, for comedies. that because well, mostly because they're being done anyway. Right, so right. people are taking well. people are, people are actually mounting their own productions of our shows. It's better that we can create a great version of it um, and tailor it to them, and then let them do it. Any final thoughts for us? Um, I, sound, I sound Jerry Springer, don't I? <laughs> is that what Jerry Spr- I've only seen Jerry Springer the opera. I've never actually seen the Jerry Springer episode. You know, it's uh, it's been an amusing ride for me because uh, actually I started the Disney Company almost 17 years ago. And to be a theater guy who um, makes a weird segue into animation, um, which I never thought I would do and grew to love, but to come back to the theater, which is where I'm from and where I've spent my whole life, and now to be able to live full-time in New York when I'm not in London working on Mary Poppins, which is every other week, um, really is a, is a blast. And uh, to have this catalog and this team is, uh, you know, I'm pretty lucky. Well, Tom, Tom Schumacher, the president of Buena Vista Theatrical Group, the Disney division that brings all these great shows to Broadway and around the world and as well. Thank you very much for being with us today on Downstage Center on XM Satellite Radio. I'm John Von Susten. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing. Please join us again next time on Downstage Center. Thank you. <laughs>